from that on. All right. So uh, this morning we'll be turning to 1 Timothy, if you have your Bibles open. Love to have you open with us and read with us as this morning we uh, continue our study through 1 Timothy. Specifically, we'll be starting in verse 12, continuing through the end of this chapter. But before we get there, I want to ask that you would be individuals of prayer for our country. I think all of us understand that there's an election coming up. Matter of fact, this Tuesday night, there'll be the first of several debates between uh, President Trump and the former Vice President Biden. And I want to ask that you would view that and don't go with just the political pundits in one way or another. And, and I want to ask that you not just let your emotions and your feelings control how you vote, but I want to ask that you would have a biblical perspective and listen to what they're saying and give a fair, no matter what side of the political spectrum you find yourself on, give each individual a fair shake, but listen to it through the filter of God's word. I would encourage you to do the same thing for the mayors, your, your county officials, your, your judges, uh, city council members, and so forth, that you and I as Christians would vote according to biblical standards, not just the popularity or even our own emotions. A couple of things just as far as guidelines to, to help us as we filter through, and, and by the way, we are all bombarded with a bunch of information, aren't we? We are all bombarded with information, but we need to be able to be discerners of what is truth from air. So I want to remind you of a couple simple things. In Romans chapter 13, the Apostle Paul who wrote that told us that government was instituted by God, but it, government was instituted by God for the punishment of evil. I know it's unpopular in our current culture to talk about evil, but if any of us have been alive for any length of time, we understand that there is genuine evil in the world around us. And so in Paul's setting, he had no choice of who got to be in charge of him. He had no choice of who was the government. In our setting as Christians, or as Americans, we have a tremendous privilege to be able to vote for who governs us. Now, I want to ask that as you have this opportunity, that you would exercise it. Don't shrink back in shame or uncertainty, but exercise this in a biblical way. So as I said, um, government is there for the punishment of evil. So a couple of things for you to consider as you consider how you ought to vote. Probably one of the primary things, at least for me personally, as I look at the scriptures, is we know that God hates those that take innocent life those that would take life without due process. We know the Bible is clear that he hates the shedding of innocent blood. And so as we look at events and, and individuals, men and women, who would ask for our vote, one of those filters ought to be, are they committed to what we would call, or what is oftentimes called, the pro-life or pro-life legislation? A second issue would be that, our, again, our government is there for the punishment of evil. Now, there are those in government who don't believe that there is evil, but all of us understand there is evil in the world around us. And so I would encourage you to look for candidates who would use your tax dollars for the punishment of evildoers. 
Perhaps another issue that is oftentimes a hot-button issue in our culture, and there's many more than, than my short list here, but we know clearly the Bible says that we are called to be generous, to help those that need help. But the Bible also says if an individual is unwilling to work, they shouldn't eat. So we ought to be looking for individuals that want to exercise or, or evaluate our welfare system in a godly way. And then, of course, the, the not of course, I'm sorry, but for me it's in a course, uh, the, the stance towards the nation of Israel. We know the Bible says that those who would benefit or who bless the nation of Israel, would they themselves be blessed? And so as you look at, and you might even think on the local levels, what's Israel got to do with it? But it gives you a shadow of, or an indication of where that individual's heart is at. So again, those issues would be the kind of the, what we might say, the pro-life, anti-evil, pro-work, and pro-Israel. I'm not suggesting who you should vote for. And by the way, please understand that there are Christians on all sides of political spectrums. There are godly men and women who have holds different kinds of political views or are part of different political parties. My urge is that as you evaluate in the next, I think it's 37 days left before the national election, that you would evaluate things based on biblical principles, not just what somebody tells you or what's popular. Um, by the way, there are no perfect candidates. I checked. Jesus Christ is not on the ballot, so there are no perfect candidates but let's look for the one that's the most biblical. Turning in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1 again. Just want to remind you that Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul probably while he was um, in the area of Philippi, Macedonia, up in this region up here, and he's writing back to the city of Ephesus. He had left Timothy in Ephesus to be the pastor, the 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 overseer of that local church body. And so he's writing instructions back to him. And as we, we noticed last week, that I want to urge you not to take this letter and consider, well, that's just for ministers. That's just for pastors. There's things here for each of us as Christians. And I want to encourage you to evaluate it that way. This morning's message is titled, oddly, Grace and Warfare. It might sound like they're contradictory terms. But then the first section, Paul is going to elaborate on us about the grace of God, the grace of God at work in Paul's personal life. And I want to urge and hope that you would see the grace of God in work at your life, in your life. And then the last portion of the verses that we'll cover this morning, the Apostle Paul talks about spiritual warfare. We may not like it, but each of us are engaged in a spiritual battle. If you don't like it, it doesn't change the fact that there's a battle going on. And so we might as well be alert to it and gather some principles that the Apostle Paul is going to share with us this morning. So verses 12 through 17 deal with the idea of God's grace at work, the grace of God at work in our lives. We're going to see this morning that God uses unworthy people. The Apostle Paul, by the way, counted himself as unworthy. We're going to see that Christ came into the world. That's a demonstration of the grace of God, that Christ would come into this Christ-rejecting world. Christ also was long-suffering. And then in response to this, we'll see Paul giving the attributes or talking about the attributes of God. 
In the second section, section, not session, sorry, this didn't mean to imply that this was going to be an all-day event here this morning. Uh, in the second session, section, golly, um, that we'll be covering this morning, I title it The Fight the Good Fight. That we're called to wage a warfare. We're called to have faith. And then he'll give us some examples of those that didn't wage the warfare well, those that were shipwrecked in their walk with God. So let's look at uh, the first section of verses here. Uh, God uses unworthy people in verses 12 through 14. So, and I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me worthy, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, I have attained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. So Paul, again, is writing to his younger man, Timothy, a younger man in the ministry, and he says, I thank Jesus Christ who has enabled me. Sometimes you might read the Bible, you might read, for example, the book of Acts, and you might think that Paul was just a self-made man, a man who just did everything he could through his own abilities and his own strengths. But if you read a little bit more carefully, you'll understand that Paul, although used greatly by God, was a man of tremendous weaknesses, and he's a man who was greatly dependent upon God. So he says here in this opening line in verse 12 that he thanks Jesus Christ who has enabled me. How was it that Paul was able to endure hardship, uh, to be able to share the gospel, to endure prison, to be able to endure people beating him up? It was God who enabled him to do that. And Paul specifically said that God entrusted me with this gospel message. And I'd like to share with you this morning that each of us have been enabled by God in various ways to be his representatives to the people that are around you this week. You are called by God to be ministers to those around you. Ministry, and we'll get to this in a minute, but ministry doesn't mean just the people up front or the people on TV. Ministry is each of us. And we are called to minister one to another. Sometimes it's coming alongside a sister who's just having a difficult time. Sometimes it's sharing the gospel with somebody for the first time. And oftentimes it's a blend of all those things. But each of us have been called by God and then also enabled or equipped by God to do this work of this ministry. Sometimes we as Christians, we view Christian service like it's volunteering, like it's optional. I get to serve, I don't have to serve. If I feel like it, I'll do it, but if I don't feel like it, I won't. But that's not the biblical model. As Christians, in regard to Jesus Christ and the work of the church, there are no volunteers. And I'm sorry, we use the term volunteers too often. We ought to say servants or fellow servants. Because there is no volunteerism in the gospel community, in the church of Jesus Christ. We are all called to be servants. 
or a more unpopular term, is we are all called to be slaves. We are duty-bound as slaves or as servants of Jesus Christ. We're duty-bound, and faithfulness is expected by our Lord and our God for such servants. God expects us to be faithful. God expects us to serve. Service is not to be an exception for any of us. Now, we all serve in various ways, and we're not to be jealous of one person's talents or their service, nor are we to be ambitious about somebody else's, but we are called to serve God in our own way. For some of us, that is showing up for work, paying the bills, teaching your kids to love God. And you might say, but that's not a big deal. But no, it is, because you're training the next generation. For others of us, it may just, it may be, I, I, <laughs> I pulled in my neighbor's trash cans because God prompted me to. And my neighbor doesn't even like me. It may be sharing the gospel. It may be going to a foreign land. But may we first be faithful in what God has called you to do. Understand that service unto the Lord or being a servant of Christ requires faithfulness. God doesn't say you have to be biblically smart. And I'm not against being biblically smart. But faithfulness is the key issue. It's not how much of the Bible you know. Faithfulness is the key issue. It's not your talents or your abilities. Faithfulness is the key issue. It is not your intellect. It is your faithfulness. Every single one of us can be faithful in whatever sphere God has called us to serve him. We are all called to serve the Lord in various ways, but we are all called to serve. And notice Paul says that God, or Jesus Christ, put him into the ministry. This term ministry literally means service. It's really a, a, a term that refers to the idea of somebody, it could be drawn from the military terms, the idea that somebody is a servant or somebody that serves. Unfortunately, we have taken the term ministry to mean as if it's a lofty position. Unfortunately, some who have been working in ministry expect others to treat them as if they are special individuals. And that is not God's plan at all. The servant, put it this way, and let me just quote Jesus, if you want to be, this, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant. The last shall be first. So you and I are called to be servants, and, and may God forgive those who puff themselves up and expect others to follow them just because this was their idea. There's way too many of those in the Christian community. We are all called to be servants. And, and guess what? Service means hard work sometimes. It means faithfulness especially in the light of opposition. Your Christian walk, your Christian service needs to not waver because things are difficult. Now, you may have different abilities or capabilities, but your heart to serve God. And notice, primarily, it's serving God. It's oftentimes worked out through the local church, but you're serving God. You're not serving to get recognition. 
You're not serving to put, get your name placed on a plaque on the wall, but you're serving our great God and King. And then Paul goes on to say, although I was formerly, you see, Paul could consider himself to be disqualified. And I think this is one of the difficulties that anybody in ministry, whether you're serving in the children's ministry, the nursery, maybe you're just at work and you're trying to share the gospel, you're trying to hold up biblical standards, and there is a temptation to think, I'm not good enough for this. And I think that comes from Satan himself. Satan loves to throw in our face all of our failures. And by the way, all y'all have failed, haven't you? We don't need to raise hands. We just all know that we all have failed. Some of us have failed in more public ways than others. But notice this. Paul says, I formerly was this. This is what I used to be. In that little testimony of myself, I used to be an industrious young man who had discovered ways to break into stuff. Now, I never got caught. I don't know if that means I just wasn't bold enough or if I just was quick enough to get away. But again, in my little testimony, this, is, this boggles my mind. I go away for this retreat to learn about Jesus, and my first action is to break into a house. That's not even the house that we're supposed to meet in. I formerly was a thief. I haven't broken into anybody's house in a really long time. <laughs> Honest, I haven't. If you need somebody to break into your house, no, no kidding. No, <laughs> but I was formerly this. And, and I believe Paul's speaking to Timothy saying, look, things are difficult in Ephesus and people will complain and you will feel as if you are not qualified or worthy to serve the Lord. But... God uses unqualified, unworthy individuals in his kingdom. Paul goes on to say, look, I did some of these things in ignorance or unbelief. Now, please, don't under please do understand this. That's not an excuse for sin. There isn't, in regards to eternity, whether you enter into heaven or to hell, God doesn't have categories of sin. Yet there are categories of sin that weigh heavier consequences than others. In Paul's particular case, he was ignorant. He didn't understand what he was doing. Again, that's not an excuse for the sin. Probably the greater difficulty is when somebody fully understands what they're doing is sin, and they do it anyways. Yet God is able to redeem or rescue someone, whether they did something in ignorance or they did it in absolute rebellion. I think all of us have been in both categories, haven't we? At times, we've been absolutely rebellious. I knew the difference, but I chose to do the wrong thing anyways. Or other times, we were unaware or didn't really understand. And so, Paul says he was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy. Blasphemer is somebody who speaks evil of the good that God wants to do. In Paul's particular case, he was a religious man, but he spoke evil of those that had turned to faith in Jesus Christ. 
insolent or rebellious or stubborn. Yet God attained or he attained mercy or God was merciful to him. And the grace of God. Now, now when we talk about grace, unmerited favor is one definition of it. Another definition that I like is God's resources at Christ's expense. We are saved by grace through faith, but then also this measure of grace or this gifting that comes from God is also for us to live our lives before God. The grace of God is not only for salvation. We first taste of the grace of God at that moment of salvation, but then we should be drinking from the well of grace every day of our lives. Do you find yourself having difficulty in one area or another? You need to plead and ask for the grace of God, the gifting of God, the empowerment of God in your life. We all need that. And so Paul says here in verse 14, the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. It's the idea of a cup overflowing. It's the idea of I had so much grace that it just splashed all over the place. And may that be our lives. May we experience the love of Jesus Christ that it just splashes out of our hearts into everything that we do. It might be walking down the aisle at Walmart and may the grace and the love of Jesus Christ be splashing out of your life. It may be at home with your kids and may the grace of God be splashing out of your life. It may be at work, but may the grace of God be splashing out of your life, overflowing into others' lives. And that's what Paul's talking about. This grace of God was abundant, splashing out with faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to say this in verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Verse 15 Christ came into the world. The manifestation of this grace of God is that Jesus Christ, being fully God, fully man, came into this messed up world. The moment he was born, they tried to kill him. The religious leaders rejected him. The political leaders wanted to put him to death. His very own disciples abandoned him in his most critical time in his life. That evening that he was going to be arrested and betrayed, his disciples vanished. Peter, who boldly say, I will never leave you, I'll defend you to the death, could even acknowledge him as a friend to a servant girl during his trial. Yet he willingly did this, being fully God, knowing all these things, he willingly did this. It's a demonstration of the grace of God. It's a faithful saying. It's worthy of all acceptance in our lives. We need to understand one of the fundamental, it is the fundamental. Jesus came into this world. Fully God came into this world because of his great love for you and I. Because he wants to empower you to live for him. He wants to radically change your life. But it begins with the idea that Jesus Christ came into this world. Jesus being there at creation, being there, I would submit to you, at the burning bush with Moses. Jesus Christ had always existed, but he chose to take on the form of a human. And why did he do this? According to verse 15 here, 
Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is the one of the most fundamental, necessary things that we have to understand. You and I are sinners. If we can't get past point one, there's no point in sharing anything else regarding the gospel. The gospel message is this. You and I are sinners. And the consequences of our sin is spiritual death in hell for eternity. The good news is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save us from the consequences of our own sin that we might have eternal life. Over in Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul wrote this. He said, when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus came into the world before you had an unction about him. Before you were either the twinkling in your mother's eye and your father's eye. Jesus knew you, knew that you were a sinner, knew that you needed to be rescued. And he demonstrated that love for us. Demonstrated his love for us. Demonstrated his grace for us. Christ died for the ungodly. You see, unfortunately, in Christian circles, too many pastors, too many ministers, too many preachers are unwilling to use the word sin. Our world is filled with sinners. And if we're going to represent the Lord, we must come to terms with that. I'm a sinner. I still am a sinner. I'm a sinner not because I simply tried to break in to a house that wasn't ours to break into. But there's a long list of other things that I am sinners. I'm a sinner. Unfortunately, again, in this world, in our, in our current climate, there are too many people who are unwilling to acknowledge the fact that we are sinners. Unwilling to acknowledge the fact that there's evil in this world. Some of us have come face to face with that evil in this world. Some of us have been perpetrators of that evil. Some of us have been victims of that evil. But evil is real. Sin is real. And we, our culture, our society, as individuals and as a country, we need to be rescued from this evil that is present in this world. And the Bible tells us that we are rescued through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Death is real. At least for me personally, there's been this string of individuals that I've known that have died. John mentioned during the announcements of the funeral for his father. Saturday, I did another funeral for a mom. Several weeks ago, Marlon, our dear brother, passed away. Laura Montez's mother passed away. Alex's mom passed away. Death is real. Where are you going to spend eternity? If you have faith in Jesus, absolutely, and praise the Lord for that. But none of us are good enough by ourselves. And matter of fact, the Apostle Paul, who the Lord used to write most of the New Testament, says this about himself. I'm chief of sinners. I'm the worst of the sinners, he says. And I think Paul has some credible ground to stand on. Why? Because notice this. Paul's, what was Paul doing before he became a Christian? He was literally persecuting Christians. 
If you recall, when he was on the road to Damascus, he had letters that he could imprison and, if necessary, torture Christians to put an end to Christianity. That was Paul's idea. In Acts chapter 26, Paul, when he's before King Agrippa, says this, And I punished them often in every synagogue, compelling them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged against them. This is Paul. Not only was he causing physical pain in people's lives, but he was also causing them to question their faith and in some cases tried to deny their faith. Jesus told us over in Luke chapter 17, talking about those that cause offense or cause a spiritual offense. He said this, it would be better for him if a millstone was hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than he should offend one of these little ones. Shame on anyone that causes anybody else to stumble in their faith before the Lord. Now, certainly the apostle Paul was forgiven, but I think he carried with him this constant reminder how opposed he was to the gospel and how gracious God was to him. The more we understand the depravity of our own sins, the more we understand the tremendous grace of God and the love of God. Sometimes we tend to think too lightly of our own sins. We are all sinners. And we need to come to terms with the fact that if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, I would be running headlong to hell. But praise the Lord for the grace of God and the demonstration of his love that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And we are all sinners. Another demonstration of this grace of God is found here in verse 16. We could look at it as Christ's long-suffering. Verse 16, However, for this reason, I attained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might be shown all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. What an amazing statement that Jesus Christ would demonstrate his long-suffering or patience. I don't know about you, but I really like it when other people are long-suffering with me. I tend to have this hypocritical attitude, though, sometimes, don't I? Don't we? I do. I want to be long-suffering. I want others to be long-suffering with me. In other words, if I'm in line and I forgot something, I want my place to be held. I want people to be patient with me as I do whatever. But if I'm the second one in line and I see somebody else doing that, it's easy for me to grow impatient. Here, Paul says, praise the Lord that Christ is long-suffering with me, that Christ would choose to use me of all people for his glory. Well, here's an interesting thing. God wants others to see what he can do by working in us. Or let me put it more pointedly. God wants others to see God's great glory as he works through 
you. You might say, but I'm not talented. I'm not gifted. I don't have this. I don't have that. And God says, I don't care. I want to use you. But Lord, I've messed up in all these areas of my life. And God says, I know that, by the way. I already know that you messed up. And by the way, those things you haven't even thought of yet that are sins, I already know about them, and I have forgiven them, and I still want to use you. But Lord, I'm not eloquent. And God says, I don't care. I want to use you. But I'm not talented. And God says, I don't care. I want to use you. Remember, the call is not about talent or ability. It's about faithfulness. Will you faithfully serve the Lord? That's what it's about. In our culture, we are constantly rewarding people that have talent and abilities, whether that be a singer or an actress, uh, a sports person, a, a businesswoman or businessman. And we look at their talents and their abilities and we give them all kinds of stuff because of that. And that's not God's economy. That's not how God looks at it. God looks at, are you faithful in whatever he's called you to? And God wants to use you oftentimes in spite of your weaknesses, in spite of your inabilities. God desires to use you and therefore bring glory to others. You remember in the Old Testament, just a quick story, it's found in the book of Judges, Gideon. Gideon is hiding from the Philistines. Catch this, he's hiding from them. The Philistines were coming along just at harvest time and stealing all the Israelites' food after they'd labored all year long. So Gideon is trying to thresh this wheat. Uh, by the way, when you thresh wheat, you, you want to get on a hilltop with a nice breeze. That way the chaff, as it goes up in the air, is blown away, and the good grain goes down. Instead, Gideon was doing what? He was hiding in a vine press, a wine press, in a place that had no air to circulate around. And God says to him, you're a mighty man of valor. <laughs> but I haven't done anything yet, and I'm hiding from the Philistines. Send out a call throughout all of Israel. 30,000 people, men, show up, ready to fight. And God says, you have too many. Send anybody who's scared home. 10,000 leave. He's got 20,000 left. Still, a, a, he's now smaller a number than the Philistines, but maybe manageable. God says, you still have too many. Boils it down to finally 300 men. And why did God do that? Because when I bring the victory, I want everybody to know that I did it. See, if there were 30,000 men, they would be prone to say, look what we did. And God wants to say, look what I did. Think for a moment about how God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. Plague after plague after plague. And then the parting of the Red Sea. That everyone would be able to say, God did this. The walls of Jericho, how did they come tumbling down? God did it. In your life, in my life, whether we be like the Apostle Paul who had this Damascus Road experience. Maybe you grew up in the church and you've known Christ all your life. Maybe your testimony is different, but here's the idea. God gets the credit for it. God wants to use you, even though you don't feel worthy of it. God chooses to use you, and he is long-suffering with you. He's patient with you. I am so thankful that God is patient with me.
How about you? Are you glad God is patient with you? Because, man, do I ever need it. And then in response to verse 17, what we find here is really Paul talking about the attributes of God in response to the mercy and the grace of God that he's experienced. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor, glory forever and ever. Amen. What a wonderful outburst of praise. The more time we spend with God, the more time that we rightly understand, I am a sinner, the more we ought to respond, but so great is my God. The more you dive into knowing God, the more you ought to walk away with this same sort of idea. God is immortal, invisible, who alone is wise, and all glory and honor belongs to him. I love it when men and women who have been recognized by the world for success in some way quickly turn the credit right back to God. Now, you notice that the news media oftentimes cuts them off right there. They don't want to hear anything about Jesus. They don't want to hear anything about giving glory to God. But may we give glory to God when God uses us. God rescues our souls. May he get all the glory. Have you messed up? Absolutely. But God gets the glory. The Apostle Paul knew that Jesus was the king forever. Do you understand that? He is king forever. He's immortal. God will not disappear He's always been, he always is, and always will be. He's the creator of all things. God is invisible. Sometimes that freaks us out, but we can't see God. We can see the effects of God in people's lives, but we can't see him. But he's there. Much like you can't see the actual wind, but you can see the effects of the wind. Next time you're driving down the freeway, open up the window and stick your head out and see what happens. You'll see, you'll feel the effect of the wind. Press in and know God and see the effect of God in our lives. Now the last section, at least for this morning, a few short verses, but powerful verses, verses 18 through 20, where we are told to fight the good fight. Verse 18, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that you, that by them, excuse me, that you may wage the good warfare. Here, this word for charge is a, a command. It's the same word that we found earlier in Timothy. The word literally is a military term as a commander gives instructions to the subordinates and says, this is your command. This is God's charge to us. What is this charge? This charge is that we would be engaged in the good fight. Christian, understand there is a fight around us. So many times, I think we as Christians, we forget that we're in a spiritual battle. And then we wonder, why is it that I'm battling this issue or that issue in my life? It's because there's a spiritual battle. Why is it sometimes, why, why is it so hard for me to pray? Because it's a spiritual battle. Why is it so hard for me to study God's word? Because it's a spiritual battle. 
Why is it so hard for me to come to church at times when we gather together? Because it's a spiritual battle and we are called to be engaged in it. Again, it's a charge. Notice specifically that Timothy had been prophesied over concerning this. Now, we don't know exactly what the prophecies were. It could have been, God's going to put you into the ministry. It could have been, things are going to get really hard, Timothy, but don't quit. It could have been any of those things, but there was a prophetic word spoken over Timothy and that he was told to remember that and then go forward in that. Apparently, we we certainly know this from other scriptures, that God oftentimes uses the gift of prophecy. But sometimes we misunderstand that word prophecy. Prophecy can be predictive. But prophecy can also be encouragement. It can be exhortation. It can simply be a word from the Lord at that moment in your life. I was talking to a friend of mine on the telephone this, the other, this week. A fellow minister is just kind of going through a, a struggle. And as we were talking, I felt impressed upon the Lord to share a few things with him. And as I shared them with him, I didn't know all that was going on, but as I shared those things, he, his response to me is, I know that's a word from the Lord, because that's what I was thinking, but I was afraid to admit it. Now, I didn't know that. It's not like the Lord put on a light bulb and said, okay, Dwayne, now's the time to give a word from the Lord. But that's sometimes how the word of prophecy works. Notice this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3. He who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. Understand this. Prophecy is not always predictive in the sense of, well, tomorrow you're going to win the lottery and here are the numbers. I think all of us would love that kind of prophecy, wouldn't we? But prophecy in a biblical sense is edification. It's the building up of one another. It's exhortation and to comfort one another. Sometimes when you quote a verse to somebody, that apt word in that time, that is actually the gift of prophecy working in that person's life through you. God wants to use you. You are not disqualified from being used of the Lord just because you messed up last week. Allow the Lord to use you. But we also need to be on guard when we talk about this term prophecy. Because it is so easy for others to claim that they have a prophetic word in the sense of predictive, and then in that sense say, well, you're going to go to Zimbabwe and be the next Billy Graham of Zimbabwe. Or you're going to get married and you're going to have this, or you're going to have you know, a double portion of Daniel's blessings and all kinds of things like that that are unbiblical. We need to guard against that exaggeration, the, the what feeds the flesh that someday I'm going to be some great individual. We need to be people, men and women, who are faithful to the Lord. There is a spiritual battle going around us. And yes, the Lord wants to use us in one another's lives to encourage, to strengthen. Sometimes it is just to sort of say to somebody else, hang in there. You're not the only one. But we need to be on guard against sort of this flesh-feeding, self-promoting 
sort of prophecy. All prophecy needs to be filtered through the Word of God. If it's feeding simply your flesh, it's probably not from the Lord. If it's contrary to the Scriptures, it certainly is not from the Lord. I can't tell you the number of times I've heard somebody say something like this. But God spoke to me that I'm supposed to live with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. But the Bible clearly says not to do that. But no, God spoke to me and gave me a special revelation. Be careful about any sort of special revelations, okay? Many cults are built off of unique or special revelations to them. Filter everything that others say through God's word. We are called to be a people of God's word, a people of the book. Our lives are to be influenced by this. Earlier I spoke about political issues or voting. Our vote needs to be filtered through the word of God. But how we parent needs to be filtered through the word of God. How we work for our employer needs to be filtered through the word of God. And how we deal with one another needs to be filtered with the word of God. Don't just chase or be on guard against chasing just the experience. And that was the problem, especially in the past, with some of these prophetic ministries, is that people were chasing the experience. It gave them an emotional high that I might be like a Daniel or a Paul or whatever else oftentimes ignoring the hardship that Daniel went through, ignoring the hardship that the Apostle Paul went through, and thinking only of the fame that those individuals received. Matter of fact, in the book of Hebrews, it tells us, after he gives us this long list of those that are genuine individuals of faith and people that we should look up to, he says, the world is not worthy of the others that I can't write about those that were sawn asunder or torn asunder. The author of Hebrews says there are so many more people than just those few listed in Hebrews chapter 11. But if you examine those lives, of those that are listed in Hebrews chapter 11, you notice they all had hardship in their lives. They all had difficulties. And they all had to fight the good fight. And that's what we're called to do that you wage the good warfare. By the way, your enemy, the enemy of our souls, I don't know if you understand this or not, but he does not fight fair. Did you notice that? He does not fight fair. When you're successful, he wants to build up your pride. And when you're unsuccessful, he wants to beat you up and tell you you're a total failure. He doesn't fight fair. He's the enemy of your soul. And he would rather get you distracted with all kinds of things, whatever that might be, instead of allowing you to be faithful servant unto Jesus Christ. God has called you in your home, in your workplace, to be witnesses, to be servants for him. And Satan wants to get you distracted on all kinds of other things. Understand, it is waging warfare. Now, you know the weapons of our warfare are not physical or carnal, 
but they're spiritual. So you don't win this battle by gathering up your nine millimeter and being loaded for bear. You don't win this battle by putting a tank in your backyard to protect yourself. You don't win this battle by hunkering down and ignoring everyone else. This is a spiritual battle, and the weapons of our warfare are spiritual. May we be very careful to engage in that. And as we engage in the spiritual battle, we're called to have faith, verse 19. Having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. In the midst of the spiritual battle, you must have faith. Faith in a great and powerful God. Faith in a God who is faithful, who has never let you down. Faith in a God who is never late. Now, God doesn't go by your timing, does he? I can tell you there's lots of times I've complained to him because he hasn't done things in my timing but his timing is perfect. Have faith. It's essential as we're engaged in the spiritual warfare around us that we have faith in Jesus Christ. When doubts come in, we counteract those doubts with the shield of faith. Satan wants to fight you. He wants to discourage you. He wants to condemn you. And your response is faith. I believe in Jesus Christ. Timothy was specifically was called to have faith in a great God, even though he was enduring difficulties. To have faith. That's what makes us as Christians different than the rest of the world. It's not our political ideas. It's not our ethnicity. It's not our talents or lack of talents. It's our faith. Do you have faith in an almighty God who is immortal, invincible, who knows you personally and has called you to do the work of ministry. And as you have faith, be careful to keep a clean conscience before the Lord. Or another way to put it is keep short accounts. When you mess up, own up to it. You know what? I was wrong when I said this or I did that. Keep short accounts between you and God and then with other Christians. By the way, we all mess up. Again, we are all failures or all sinners, but we're saved by this grace of God. But notice this, that some have rejected walking in faith and have become shipwrecked. They've rejected or turned their backs in the midst of the spiritual battle and they've become shipwrecked. I would like you to notice, though, that being shipwrecked doesn't mean that God is done with you. Many of us in different seasons of our lives have been shipwrecked. But God, because of his great mercy and kindness, wants to even deliver us from that shipwreck. The Apostle Paul physically was shipwrecked multiple times, but that didn't preclude him from being used in ministry. Unfortunately, the Christian church, we tend to shoot our wounded instead of ministering to them. I'm not excusing the failures of men and women in the ministry. I'm not suggesting that we excuse 
their failures, but we ought to be a hospital ministering to others, encouraging them, strengthening them in the Lord. Because no man, no woman is perfect. We all fail. Sometimes our failures are very large. And yes, individuals need to be genuine in their repentance. Sometimes those that have been caught in various sins want to be quick to forget it and just move on. But there oftentimes needs to be a great season of grief for my own personal failures in recognition of that. It's not that God can't or won't use somebody, but we need to make sure that that restoration process is thorough because oftentimes what happens for those that are in public ministry, when they fail, there's been not just the failure that we know about oftentimes is just the tip of the iceberg. And there's a lot more deeply rooted issues that they need to resolve before the Lord before they again engage in what we might call public ministry. Too many times we are too quick to promote somebody because they're popular. But please don't misunderstand this. God is able and willing to use those who have broken lives. And then Paul gives us an example, and we don't really know anything about them, verse 20, of whom Hermanus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan that, he might, that they might learn not to blaspheme. We don't really know anything about these individuals, but notice this. Paul says, I withdrew fellowship from them, gave them over to the world so that they would learn to walk in faith before Jesus Christ. And that's really the call for each of us. We need to learn to walk in faith. Because somebody fails in a public way doesn't mean that God is therefore unfaithful. You and I will mess up. That doesn't mean that God is unfaithful. You and I sometimes will be unloving towards somebody. That doesn't mean that God is unloving. You and I may not exercise faith that does not mean that God is not worthy of our faith. So remember, we talked about this already this morning. The grace of God is at work in our lives. God wants to use unworthy people. The Apostle Paul says he's the chief of the unworthy people. If I was able to have an argument with Paul, I might want to argue with him on that point. Because the more I grow in my walk with Christ, the more I realize how unworthy I really am. It's one of those dichotomies. The more you grow in your walk with Christ, the more you realize how much you desperately need him and how much of a failure you really are in and of your own abilities. So God uses the unworthy people. Christ came into the world as a demonstration of his love and his grace. Christ is long-suffering. He's long-suffering with us. May we be long-suffering with others. And as we respond and re respond to this grace of God, may we understand the great attributes about God, his love, his mercy. He is king. May you respond to him as your king. And as you do those things, may you fight the good fight. We are in the midst of a spiritual warfare, but please don't misunderstand. Our warfare is not by physical means. Take up that shield of faith. Put on the helmet of salvation. Put on that armor of God. 
It's not about you. It's about who you put your trust in. In the midst of this spiritual warfare, as you wage warfare, have faith. But be on guard that you don't find yourself shipwrecked because you failed to respond to the issues in your life by faith. And that's fundamentally the issue. We all deal with issues. We all get sick. We all have disappointments in our lives. We all have loved ones that die. But how do we deal with that? Do we deal with it fundamentally in faith? Or we deal with it in our own abilities? And I'll tell you this, if you're relying upon yourself or some other individual instead of relying upon God Almighty, you will be disappointed. Disappointed in yourself, disappointed in others. But our God does not disappoint. 